Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, we covered the Air Force Association's Air Warfare Symposium in Orlando, where we had the opportunity to hear from senior service leaders, including our interview with Secretary Frank Kendall. We also spoke to C.Q. Brown Jr., the 22nd Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, and General Jay Raymond, the first Chief of Space Operations, who leads the United States Space Force. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, including at the AFA's Air Warfare Symposium last week. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. We'll hear from General Raymond shortly, but first our conversation with General Brown. Sir, it's an honor and pleasure, uh, as always, uh, having a conversation with you, especially on uh, a topic that uh, uh, you're so passionate about, which is train change. Um, you've uh, been a, transform a transformative figure, and uh, certainly you're bringing that uh, to the United States Air Force with your your uh, accelerate change and lose uh, agenda that, that you've been discussing. And certainly uh, we've gotten that message clearly also from Secretary Kendall. Um, I'm not going to ask you anything specific about the crisis that's ongoing now, but one of the things in the cases that you've always made in this is there will be a shock, there will be a crisis. It's important for us to be ready when those things happen to us that, that might be beyond our control. We've now seen an extraordinary example uh, of what, what can happen. How, do, how should this shape how people think, how they approach change, how they think about it, and in fact drive the necessary urgency because as, as we've been discussing, right, this is as much about Russia as it is preparing for China. Ivago, first, appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you. And I, I really do, when you think about when you have an event or a crisis, we always prove to ourselves that we're able to get some things done fairly quickly. And, and so uh, I've watched this throughout my career. You have something happen, and uh, the staff work that was actually slowing it down magically gets done much faster. We know how to do this. And so sometimes that crisis is a forcing function but it also, I think it will highlight to ourselves that, you know, yes, we can do some of these things faster. We don't have to go through the laborious staffing processes to get a lot of different opinions, uh, which are interesting, but uh, may not be relevant. The other part is, you know, it helps us to figure out how to balance risk. And because I, I do think there's aspects in times that we really try to de-risk to, uh, we let perfect be the enemy of good enough. But good enough will allow us to put the capability in the hands of our, our airmen, the rest of the joint team, but then continue to improve it, um, which means that we're not done once we get started. We actually give it to them. So they actually, it's better to have some, something that's not perfect than nothing when you get into uh, an event. And that, that's the key point I think we, we learn from uh, any time we have an event or a crisis. Uh, we always learn a little bit more about, uh, you know, some things that uh, um, we could continue to do better uh, because we can never predict the future, but we can help shape it and be better prepared. Uh, and, and you said, right, that you see nothing in this uh, conflict uh, that changes any of the base vectors on where you see air power or military force or anything uh, in, in terms of where the, the macro trends are. Not, not at the moment. Um, now, I will also tell you, you know, uh, we, we all learn, you know, the further you get away from an event, the more you have time to uh, do some analysis. Then you have some areas that you will, will tweak. And, uh, you know, it will really drive how big that tweak might have to be. But I think by and large, the path that uh, uh, when I came in as a chief, uh, even from my time as a uh, commander of Pacific Air Forces, um, that vector doesn't really change dramatically. 
Uh, do you change it a couple degrees based on some things you learn? Uh, sure, and that's exactly why I did the modifications to the action orders. As you come in, you, you have an idea, but then as you, uh, you, you get into it, you learn more. And as you learn more, you adjust. And that's what we have to do as, as a military, that's what we have to do as an Air Force, is uh, not be uh, you know, blindly following a vector and not adjusting once we see that the facts and assumptions in uh, the environment change, uh, we've got to adapt as well. Um, let me ask you about the time element, right? You've driven this at every single point that the single most important commodity in this is, is time, by time. Um, and you know, you mentioned about continuing resolutions. Every time this happens, we're losing years in the process at a time when our adversaries are, are not putting uh, these sorts of shackles around their ankles. From a time perspective, right, I mean, the Chinese, for example, have said 2027 is when they want to move on China by, right, the 100th anniversary of the PLA, um, People's Liberation Army. Is there a time component to this, right? I mean, what's our window in your mind as the chief? in terms of the urgency of driving this change to building these capabilities? You know, what's, what's that window? Do you see it as a five-year window, a 10-year window? Or is that necessarily not the way to look at it in terms of the change continuum? Because you're actually the, the temporary custodian and steward of this, right? I mean, how do we need to think about that time component? Yeah, I, I don't look at it uh, for you know, a finite piece and say, okay, in the next three years, four years, five years, 15 years, 20 years. Um, because I think um, we, as an Air Force, uh, and as a military, we've got to continue to evaluate. And so we've got to be best prepared for today, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow. And so you've got to think throughout the, this time continuum of the capability I want to make sure I have today so I can respond today if something happened today. If something happened you know, a few years from now, I've got to be ready. And then at the same time, I've got to prepare my successors so they have those capabilities as well. So it is a, you know, you don't think about it because otherwise, um, it's not a finite piece where you can go, you can, you know, once you get there and you go, okay, we're done. No, this, this continues, and this is a continuous process, and I think every, you know, uh, chief of staff of the Air Force uh, before me and after me has done the same thing, where you just don't, you can't just look at a, uh, a, uh, a point in time and go, hey, we're only aiming there, and we're going to stop. Um, let me take you to the uh, action orders. Um, you know, you came in with um, a, a very powerful sweeping agenda. Uh, we're seeing that reflected not just at the major command level, but also at the, at the group, uh, at the wing, uh, at the numbered Air Force level, and on down the organization. And what's been exciting here is actually seeing airmen getting coffee and actually talking about some of these things. Hey, you know, like, how do we do things better? It's embodied, actually, by this Bark Tank event that's going on right now uh, almost as we, as we speak to try to get these great ideas from across, uh, across the force. You're going to be helping judge that. Uh, What's working, what's not working, right? You, you're doing the version two. Uh, you're focusing on uh, action order B, which is the bureaucracy part of it, which uh, I think you're uh, frustrated with, that even though you're trying to drive people to do this, there's great stuff happening, but we're still not moving fast enough. Give us kind of a report card on where we are uh, now that you're about 18 months into this. Sure. So on action order A, uh, we've, we've had made pretty good progress in a number of different areas. And I've been real pleased, and there's always things we can do, because the most important thing is our and their families, and, uh, and so I've been, been pleased with the progress we're making there. Uh, and actually, we're being on bureaucracy, uh, it's, been, it's been a challenge. And I'm not surprised, because this is something I've been frustrated throughout uh, my career, particularly as a, as a leader. I've always seen these things where you kind of, you've got to challenge the status quo. And in order to uh, be an innovative force, um, we also got to take some risk. And so you can't be innovative and risk averse at the same time. And it's really how do you bring uh, and collaborate and share information. And if you go back and look at, look at Accelerate Change or Lose, one of the things I did highlight was collaboration. And that was done purposely. 
because it's those aspects where we don't talk to each other, we don't collaborate, we can't move things forward. And so that's that's what will help us with the, the bureaucracy. On the uh, action or on competition, we're making progress there as well. And the, the real key point is how we share with all of our airmen the importance of understanding the geostrategic, geopolitical environment, because that will give you the why. And, and it's important for, for myself and other leaders to be able to so we can have these conversations of what's going on, and, and you know, so our airmen don't ask, why am I going to deploy to this location? Well, we've already had that conversation, partly because we're trying to help broaden our perspective about what goes on in the world. And we have so much information at the fingertips of our airmen today, much more so than I'd had as a, as a junior, uh, uh, junior officer, and that's, that's a key part of this. And then on the design implementation, it is the aspect of us actually building out a future uh, Air Force and then be able to talk about how we need to make that transition and how we balance risk between what I have to do as a service chief, how we re respond the, uh, to the combatant command requirements. And I think we've done a fairly good job, and it's part of this is actually, as an Air Force, looking at from an enterprise level and then being able to all of our senior leaders are on the same page, and I've I, I found some success there. Part of that is just want to keep, keep that uh, momentum going um, on, uh, on, on that one as well. So I, I think we've, we've made progress on all of them. Um, you know, you make, as I said, you make the modification based on as you learn a few things and uh, figure out there's, uh, there's some things that uh, you may have to shift to left or right a little bit. But uh, I, I've been really pleased, um, not only what I see on the staff, but as I talk to our airmen and how they, they take this and now make it their own. Um, and that's really my goal here is to provide intent, not to be very directive, but to go, what do we do together? Because I, I see myself as an airman just like any one of our airmen uh, at the junior level, and we all have a role in this to be able to to drive the changes that we need to uh, uh, make. And I, I'd say most of our airmen are also frustrated with bureaucracy as well. And I, I think it's one of those areas, and that's, that'll help us enable to do pretty much all the other action orders and everything we do as an Air Force. You, you are um, a transformative figure. You're trying to drive this. You're trying to break the cage uh, effectively, right? And I think that people don't, if they don't understand it, your point is it's not just about bureaucracy, it's about war fighting. It's getting into a different kind of a mindset in terms of how you look at risk, right? Because if you want to de-risk anything, I remember when you were PACAF and we were talking about agile combat employment or, you know, what are capabilities that are coming your way? And you would always, you know, point out, you know, well, I mean, the best defense is a good offense in many cases, is, you know, and you still have to operate. How you're breaking the cage, some people want to be out of the cage but some people actually don't want to get out of the cage, right? And, and then they'll turn to you as leader and say, well, how should I change, right? Which then becomes a frustrating thing because generally people should see that. How, how do you want people to think about change? How do you want people, yeah, how, because it's one thing to take the cage out, it's another thing to actually change the mentality and not have something stupid gum up the works, which is almost invariably what we see. It's not malin, it's not with bad intention, it's just how, folks respond sometimes to the situation. You know, you know, I would tell you, every one of our airmen when they come to work each day is trying to do their best and trying to get things done. I don't know that anyone walks in the door each day to say, how do I sabotage what we're going to try to do as an Air Force? Okay, And so the, the key aspect of this is is to really empower, it's empowerment and trust are the two key factors I talk about. It's how we empower airmen to go do things and then we trust them and realize there are going to be some things that aren't going to work out perfectly. we got to be okay with that. And so as a leader, one of the things I've, I've talked about is we've, we've got to delegate, tolerate, and iterate more. We've got to delegate down to our lower level, let our airmen go do things. We've we got to tolerate more, partly because um, they're not going to do it exactly like we would. And, and so we, we've got to be okay with that. And then we've got to iterate. And what I mean by that is we've got to be involved. And it can't be just th throwing it to our airmen and go, go do this and then critique them when it's done. It's really how do we work together and have that dialogue that goes back and forth. 
uh, because I'll learn something from them. And I may learn that, you know, there may be something that's coming up the works at my level, and all I've got to do is change a policy, provide some guidance, uh, make a phone call. Uh, those are the kinds of things that are, I think, important for all of us at all levels to be able to uh, move things forward and get the culture change. And then the last thing I would say on that is, is how do we highlight those that are actually that actually get it and are actually moving forward? And you don't want them to be the nail that gets hammered down. You need to be the nail that actually gets highlighted and show this is what right looks like. And these are the kinds of things that uh, we want to see from our airmen. And we all got to be moving in the same direction. And so we got to make sure that we have the intent so we don't have a bunch of nails going in different directions. We got to kind of be going in the same direction. Um, let me uh, ask you, um, you know, you, you spend 99% uh, of your time or a vast proportion of your time on getting uh, the cultural elements right for the war fight. Uh, diversity and inclusion is, is one of those, and they're very important to you. You're the first African-American chief. Uh, but more broadly, you know, even though there are a lot of folks who sit around and wonder, like, wow, why are these issues still in 2022, uh, the reality is, you know, we're, we're people who work in progress and you, you're trying to get to a better place. And yet, unfortunately, those two words, for some, have an allergic reaction. How do you manage to do this, and why is it so important to do this uh, at the end of the day, to make sure that we get this part of it right? Because we're still dealing with issues, sadly, that should, by all accounts, have been addressed some time ago. Right. Well, the, the one thing I highlight, and it's also an accelerated change of lose, and I, I say it uh, uh, regularly, is we, we want an environment where all our, our airmen and their families reach their full potential. And if our airmen feel like they're being discriminated against, uh, harassed, bullied, assaulted, they cannot reach their full potential. And if an airman can't reach their full potential, they can't contribute to the war fighting uh, efforts that we have, you know, or the operational missions that we have because they, they're, they're not themselves and, and they're below their potential. This is why all these efforts are so important because we want all of our airmen to, to one, to have an opportunity to uh, uh, compete for various uh, positions at the same time, feel like they're, they're valued. And that's the one thing, when I go talk to airmen, uh, when I travel and I sit down and have breakfast with them, I always ask them, what do you want from your leadership? And we want our leadership to care and know me as a person, which means you've got to know them, you know, you know from where they came from, their background, their demographic. I mean, there's all these kinds of things you need to know that we just can't go uh, kind of an industrial age approach where we just don't, uh, don't think about it because it's important and it really drives us to get to the full capability of the Air Force, of not just the platforms, uh, but the airmen. Because every platform, every airplane we have, every computer we have would be all be static displays without the airmen that make them go. And, uh, you know, they can go much further when they're reaching their full potential. There are those who try to set up the, you know, that the actually diversity and, and inclusion are at the expense of war fighting, right? And there's even suggestions there are folks who are, who are getting out of uh, the services because of that. How do you respond to that, to those who sort of try to make this a, well, by, by virtue of even spending time on this, it means that you're diminishing somehow war fighting or war fighting focus? Actually, spending time on diversity and inclusion makes us better war fighters. And the reason why is you get to know more about the person to your left or your right. You get to know that airman a little bit better and you build trust and confidence. And, and you think about um, all of our airmen and you know, service members, uh, they're always worried about the, you know, the people they serve with. You, you, you talk to the airmen that come back or servicemen that come back that are wounded. They're always wondering, hey, they feel like, the, you know, what's happening with my buddies to my left and right? How they are part of the team? And uh, that, to me, is, is a key aspect of being valued because you get to know me a little bit better. 
and, and know a little bit more about uh, my background, my family, those kinds of things. Uh, it makes us a better war fighting team. And uh, just think about any, any professional sports team. You know, um, they got to know and kind of mind meld. And the more we can know each other and, and really appreciate and value each other, uh, the better war fighters we're going to be. Sir, it's always an honor and pleasure uh, talking to you. Thanks very much for being so generous with your time. Uh, keep breaking a leg and already looking forward to the next conversation, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. And a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Here's our conversation with General Raymond. Sir, uh, thanks very much. Uh, honor and pleasure uh, talking to you uh, at this uh, conference uh, and great comments uh, earlier uh, today um, on, on the dais. I, I wanted to start off first with um, not getting to the specifics of, of Russia, Ukraine at all, because I understand that all of those questions are being handled by the White House and by the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, but obviously it was an issue that was has been discussed by many uh, participants here today. And and you're just not just um, the commander of the United States Space Force, but you're also the, basically the custodian of, of the nation's uh, space assets in a, in a sense, or safeguarding everything from commercial spacecraft all the way to, to military spacecraft. Um, is there anything that you see in the course of what's happening now that changes any of the threat vectors to our space assets, especially given some of the comments uh, that Moscow has made over the last couple of days? Yeah, I, I won't. As you said, I'm not going to uh, talk about what's going on in, in the current current conflict. But what I'll tell you, and something I've been saying for for the last several years, uh, the strategic environment of space has changed. It went from an environment that was a peaceful, benign sanctuary where we could operate and all you had to really worry about was satellites that were launched survived what we call infant mortality they you know they worked when they got on orbit uh, and that's all you had to worry about that's not the case today and there's a series of threats from reversible jamming to kinetic uh, destruction uh, that that has been developed or being developed and that's concerning uh, the other thing that we're concerned about again not specifically in this instance but more broadly is that as access to space becomes easier and the barriers to entry are lowered, there are more capabilities being launched into space, both government and commercial. And if deterrence were to fail, uh, those capabilities are now in the hands of our competitors. And so uh, where in the past we've had the luxury of being the ones with that advantage, if deterrence fails, that's no longer the case. And, and those uh, competitors or adversaries would be uh, space enabled and have the same advantages that we've we've been blessed to have uh, pretty much uh, with impunity over the last 30 years. Is there anything uh, about what we're seeing and what you're seeing um, from the Russians and their behavior and our anticipated you know whatever lessons the Chinese may draw from this this crisis that would cause you to change any of your long-range planning you know operational planning uh, or, or otherwise? Yeah, so I am the chief of the Space Force. That's a, a service that's focused on organized, train, and equip. Our job is to build capabilities and provide those capabilities and operate those capabilities for a combatant commander, in, the, in my case, U.S. Space Command. Uh, both uh, China and Russia, with China being our pacing threat, are developing capabilities, as I talked about, for their own use and also to, to deny us our access to space. What that's requiring us to do is fundamentally change how we do business how we train our operators, how we develop, uh, recruit, assess, train, develop uh, our, our personnel, uh, 
our tactics, techniques, and procedures that we use. Uh, and it's forcing us to look at the, the, how we design the architecture that's in space. And so today we have handfuls of very exquisite capabilities uh, that are the world's best capabilities, but they were designed for a different domain. And as China and Russia uh, continue to, to develop these threats, uh, we have to make that shift. So our focus uh, here is, has largely been to, to pivot to new capabilities to ensure that our joint and coalition forces always have the space capabilities that they need, uh, and at the same time, pivot in a way that the architecture is more resilient by the design of the architecture. It's very, it's uh, analogous to financial planning. You know, when I first went to a financial planner for my finances, you know, one of the foundational things they said is you have to diversify your, your portfolio. Well, you do that, so if one stock or whatever takes a hit, you don't go broke. Same, same way analogous, we want to diversify our architecture to be more resilient to make sure that those capabilities are always there uh, for our nation and our coalition partners. Um, let me, uh, can I, and I want to get to the uh, combined um, uh, space operations vision 2031 that has right. our five R's partners in it because I want to ask you a coalition space integration question uh, in, in a moment. But first I want to ask you a couple of questions actually that are cyber related. I think people have a tendency of thinking about space and spacecraft but not actually understanding that actually your domain actually extends from the bottom of the ocean all the way up uh, to uh, space. Um, the undersea cables, for example, connect to nodes and then uplinks and downlinks go through a space infrastructure. Uh, and each of that constitute kind of a vast cyber attack surface. Talk to us about how we need to think not just of the spacecraft, but actually of a continuum of the foundational now infrastructure we need, not, not just for, for, for military operations, but actually is, that is just an essential for life almost as much as it is food and water. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, we live in a very connected world, and space is a, a critical part of that. As you said, it's 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 more than just about the satellite. It's about you know the the satellite, the link between the ground and the satellite, being able to distribute the, that information across the globe. Uh, one of the values of standing up a separate space force was we were able to sharpen our cyber focus. Uh, historically, when I was the Air Force Space Command commander back in 2016, I was responsible for both space and cyber in the Air Force. And uh, shortly after that, we shifted uh, cyber to Air Combat Command. Uh, it was the best thing that happened to us because it allowed us, rather than focusing on providing uh, unclassified networks uh, and, and classified networks to, to users, we could focus on uh, developing and understanding the cyber terrain of, of space and to make sure that we could uh, protect and defend uh, our space capabilities from any potential cyber threat. We have stood up an 06 level command that, that has all of our cyber operators in that command. We have detachments that we put at the other 06 level commands to make sure that, that we have space or cyber expertise infused throughout our, our space uh, uh, forces. And we actually have cyber operators that sit side by side uh, with our space operators to again under, better understand the cyber train and better protect and defend those capabilities. Um, are you, a lot of our space infrastructure was, as we see with a lot of our military infrastructure, that it, they may not be as secure as we had hoped, whether because of hardware vulnerabilities, software vulnerabilities, uh, age of platforms, for example. Are you satisfied with the level of security now from a cyber perspective of the nation's space assets? Uh you know, I, I come to work every day focusing on making sure we're secure on a whole host of, of, of threats from, from, as I talked about, jamming to, to directed energy to kinetic destruction to cyber. I will tell you I feel comfortable that I can 
protect and defend the capabilities that we have today. Uh, but we have to run fast to stay ahead of these threats to make sure that I can say the same thing a year from now, and that our focus is to stay ahead of a, a vast spectrum of threats. Um, one of the key elements, one, one, of, the th one of your goals is uh, the closer integration of the Joint Force space capabilities and have that be uh, not something that's sort of a, a weird add-on or something that they come to you during, during, a, during a crisis. And I want to take this also to, the, to uh, where we are as a coalition and the capabilities we need, uh, as well as the global commercial capabilities. I mean, I think the world is stunned at what Maxar, for example, is providing there uh, and, and how, and I want to ask you a broader question of sort of reconnaissance and space and how that can actually act as a very powerful military deterrent at the end of the day if you can reveal capabilities or at least changes how your adversary might think about things. Let's talk about on the joint force. What's the progress you're making in terms of that closer space integration across the entire joint force? Yeah, so back in 2019, we did two things as a nation. One, we stood up in August of 19 U.S. Space Command. That is the joint War Fighting Combatant Command that has relationships with all the other combatant commands. And then uh, a couple months later, uh, we stood up the Space Force to provide those capabilities and operate those capabilities for that command. Uh, I think in both cases, from a U.S. Space Command integration with, uh, with other combatant commands, that has, uh, we made some significant progress. And on the Space Force side, uh, we've also made significant progress. We have now great independent relationships with all of our sister services from a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, if you will. Uh, we are also working to have components, Space Force components, at all of the geographic combatant commands to better, even better integrate space than what we've done. And we've really been working this integration piece since Desert Storm. I mean, since 1991, what some refer to as the first space war, uh, my, almost my whole career has been focused on integrating space. Uh, we've taken that to a new level with both a combatant command and a service that are dedicated to these domains that can reach out uh, at equal organizational levels uh, and, and uh, make sure that we've got it well integrated. And I remember uh, General Chuck Horner uh, being one of the guys who was focused on integration of that, obviously, as, as one of the architects of, of the uh, 91 yeah, I was, uh, I, was a young, I was a young captain in, in Air Force Space Command at the time when he came to the command. And I remember very clearly, he came in and said, hey, I, first of all, I think it was a very powerful message that the Air Force sent General Horner, who was the first JFAC, the, the war hero, if you will, of Desert Storm, and sent him to Air Force Space Command. That sent a huge message that space is, is a, a key player in this. I remember very clearly he came to town, and when he came to town, he said, hey, uh, you guys provide some really good capability, but you sit in the back room with your green eye shade on, you can't talk to anybody, and in the last second, you, you, we got to integrate. And so, as I said, my whole career uh, up until like 2008, 9, 10 timeframe, my whole career is all about integrating. I mean, that's, that's what we did. We integrated space into everything that we do, and we did great at it. There's nothing we do as a joint force that isn't enabled by space. That's also a challenge that we now have to, you know, our, our competitors or adversaries have seen that and are trying to deny us that advantage. And so now it's not just good enough to integrate. You've got to integrate and you've got to be able to protect and defend.
Um, let me uh, take you to coalition space assets. Obviously, we've got the combined uh, space operations vision 2031. It's the Five Eyes nations, but France and Germany as well, and a whole bunch of initiatives that are that are ongoing. Germany obviously spending more money, which is fortunate, and, and France is a space power of the first order with everything from the most sophisticated uh, space uh, commercial satellites as well as launch capabilities. But the French have been generally in a stack of their own uh, from a national perspective. Talk to us about how we should be crafting a coalition space architecture as part of that sort of resilient intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, communications complex we're trying to build. And also talk to us a little bit about what our partners in Asia are doing. Japan is also a first-rate space power with a lot of capability. Talk to us about your plan of getting all of our allies and partners on the same space page. Uh, well, I think it's a huge opportunity for us. Um, I, as I mentioned on the stage this morning, uh, Historically, partnerships in national security space with our with our international partners wasn't wasn't uh, something that we had a lot of, and I'll tell you uh, we need them in a in a big way. So I would say, so largely since pro probably two thousand seven, eight, nine timeframe, we started this thing called CSPO. It started out with our Five Eyes partners, and we expanded that now to include Five Eyes plus France and uh, uh, and Germany. Uh, what used to be one way data sharing uh, partnerships is now two-way partnerships where we operate together, we train together, we war game together, we develop uh, uh, norms of behavior uh, together, we're thinking through that together, and now developing capabilities together. We, we're putting payloads on Norwegian satellites that saved us almost a billion dollars. We're putting payloads on Japanese satellites that gives us capability, uh, saves us dollars and gets capability onto orbit faster. We want to do more of that. And I think as smaller satellites become more relevant, and um, less exquisite satellites become more relevant. As we do this design, this proliferated design, uh, we have a lot of opportunities to do this collectively with our, with our uh, partners. One of the uh, key working groups of CSPO is an, is an architecture working group. And, and we've shared our force design work with our, with our closest partners. We want to we do that collectively. I think it adds to integrated deterrence. Uh, if you can diversify that architecture amongst our allies as well. We work messaging together. So I, I, I'll tell you, one of the, the best things that I've seen over the last three or four years is how these partnerships, which really started as data partnerships, has really taken off on Japan. I was stationed in Japan back in 2011, and um, I would talk to my Japanese counterparts in the Japanese Air Force, and there was not a big space uh, play there. That's not the case today. They are they uh, have a, a, a strong space vision. They've stood up a, a space squadron. They're they're expanding that to a space group. Uh, we have very close partnerships with them. We've invited them to play in our in our Shriver War Game, uh, and I think that's going to be uh, it. That we, we're they're a strong partner in all other domains, and and they're becoming extremely strong partners in the space domain as well. Let me ask you one last question, and it's about how space can be a deterrent shaping uh, weapon. I mentioned the Maxar imagery, for example. The extraordinary intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities that we have. Uh, obviously, we're providing some of that capabilities uh, to Ukraine right now, but more importantly, we've used that as a way to try to shape Russian planning, uh, ultimately. I don't want to ask you specifically about that, but how do we need to think about using these kinds of assets uh, as a shaping 
deterrent tool? And conversely, how do we need to think about how we operate in a world where space becomes so proliferated that, that our adversaries can also see us with a degree of extraordinary clarity? I remember interviewing the guys who were Tonopah on the F-117 program and how cognizant they were that, okay, Russian satellite coming over. We got exactly 90 minutes to do this test set, for example, and then we got to be in the hardened shelter. Now you're in a position where you're being watched all the time. How do we need to think about both elements of this, both as to defend ourselves, to shape how do we need to think about this space where basically nobody really can hide anymore? Yeah, I, you know, people ask me about space deterrence all the time, and I always push back on it and say there's no such thing as space deterrence. There's deterrence. And deterrence, there's some foundational calculus to deterrence. That's imposing costs and denying benefits. And I truly believe that space can has a role in amplifying those deterrence messages. That's the cornerstone uh, as the Secretary of Defense has said, to a national defense strategy on integrated deterrence. And it's, it's no longer just what we've traditionally thought about deterrence as the, the nuclear triad. It's adding other pieces together, and, and it's adding partners uh, together as well. I think space clearly has a role in that, uh, and I think, um, I think you're right. As, as, const as space becomes accessible, you know, what, what, used, what used to be in space great power competition between two great powers back in the Cold War, you now have students launching satellites. And so as more things uh, get populated, uh, we're going to have to learn to operate in an environment where everything is seen, and, every, and, and not just seen, but known exactly where it is on the face of the, on the, face of the globe. I mean, uh, it's everybody. It's a geospatial to component it's, to it. That's exactly right. And that's something that we're going to have to learn to operate in. Sir, thanks very much. Honor and pleasure. Look forward to a longer uh, conversation. you got a terrific team. Thanks so very much and already looking forward to the next discussion. I look forward to it as well. I hope, hope to do it again soon. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.